Making excuses like that, they can make us laugh, but making excuses isn't funny to God, especially when we try to excuse ourselves from something that he expects us to do. And I know that our good intentions don't always lead to application in our lives uh, because we're trying to excuse ourselves from something that he expects us to do. Um, uh, I know our excuses, they can pile up, just like peanut shells at Texas Roadhouse. Uh, it, but today I want us to look at some major excuse makers. Uh, they started off strong and they fell off in their work. They, they started out uh, just being so on fire. They were gung-ho. They were ready to do anything. And the next thing you know, they weren't. And to be honest, they weren't even trying that hard. And I think that happens a lot in our Christian lives. You might hear a message, a sermon, and think to yourself, I am going to start doing that. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I am just going to serve so much more. I'm going to forgive people when they, when they hurt me. I'm going to be more faithful. I'm going to participate. I'm going to join a small group. And, and maybe I'll even lead one. I'm going to give more of me, my time, and my money. And by the time that lunch is over Sunday afternoon, you've forgotten what it is that you decided to do. So today, what I want us to do is to begin a series looking through the book of Haggai. Um, that's everybody's favorite Old Testament minor prophet, right? Haggai? It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. It's a little bit hard to find. It's right between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Does that help? No. If you find Matthew and hang a left three books, that's where it is. So you should be able to find Matthew. But we're going to spend several weeks, I'm planning eight weeks in Haggai, studying this Old Testament book because I think that it really speaks to us as much as it did to the people that Haggai was prophesying to. But... <laughs> Before we jump in, before we get started, in order for us to properly interpret and apply this book, we have to put it in its historical context. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain history in a way that's understandable, maybe even interesting. So please don't check out. Not yet. You can later, but not yet. Uh, see, because it's once we've learned the major points in God's redemptive history, we'll have a greater appreciation how all the books in the Bible go together, and we'll be able to apply their lessons to our lives. So I want to start with a man named Abraham. Uh, he came from a pagan country and was promised a place and a people by God. He and his wife, they gave birth to a son named Isaac. He became the father of Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they ended up in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. Moses led them out, and God gave his people instructions for how to worship him in a portable worship center called the Tabernacle. And after they entered the Promised Land, they were given three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Now, David wanted to build a permanent place of worship, but that honor was given to his son Solomon, who would eventually construct the temple. And the temple it became the center point, the, the, the focal point of worship in Israel. And then things went downhill. After Solomon died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom uh, that had ten tribes and was called Israel. And that's confusing because sometimes when we talk about Israel as being the entire nation, but it was the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom had two tribes, and they were called Judah. 
And because of their disobedience, God sent the Assyrians to conquer Israel, and the northern tribes were scattered. And even though the southern tribe, even though Judah saw what was happening and how badly things went for their northern brothers, they didn't repent. And then God would send the Babylonians to destroy Judah, to destroy Jerusalem, decimate the temple, and would deport the Jews to what's now modern-day Iraq. And many of God's prophets had predicted that this captivity would, would not be the end of the nation. It would eventually end, and 70 years later, God's people were allowed to go back home. And years later, he allowed Persians to conquer the Babylonians and move King Cyrus to issue a decree to let some of the Jews return. And in three stages, they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. In the first group, 50,000 Israelites returned to Judah with Zerubbabel, and they rebuilt the altar and began offering sacrifices. Two years later, they, they finished the foundation of the temple. And then they got discouraged, and they quit. They gave up. God sent them prophets like Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them to finish what they had started. Ezra was also helped to, sent to help restore the spiritual passion. And Nehemiah united them to rebuild the walls. And 16 years pass, 16 years, and Haggai shows up. And he gives just four sermons in five months. And the message that he shares is pretty clear. It's time to finish what you started by putting God first. His style, it's simple, it's direct, and, and Haggai doesn't waste any words like a lot of preachers do. So I want us to just read the first four verses this morning, but let's pray before we do that. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to spend together with your people, worshiping you through songs, uh, through our giving, and as we study your word. Father, I just ask that our hearts are open to your word, to what it teaches us, and help us learn that making excuses is not a good thing. That when you've called us to do something, there is nothing that can take its place. Lord, thank you for, the, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we can find through the prophet Haggai and what his words can say and speak into our lives today and help us follow you obediently by putting you first where you should be. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name I pray. Amen. So Haggai, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This all happened on the first day. That's the day of the week where they, everyone would come together. They would gather and worship. So a lot of people would have been there. And you have to keep in mind, while Haggai is speaking, they're standing near the foundation that they had started 16 years ago. That foundation probably covered in weeds and moss. And Zerubbabel was a civic leader, and Joshua, Joshua was their spiritual leader. 
And that message first comes to the leaders. But in the second verse, Haggai lets loose with the, what the Lord of hosts has to say about their excuses. See, he's saying that these aren't my words. These aren't the words of the prophet Haggai. These are the very words of God. And the name for, for God here is the Lord of hosts. It's Jehovah Sabaoth. It refers to him as the commander of all the armies of heaven, that he is the God of angel armies. And it's used over 270 times in the Bible, and 14 of those are in just Haggai. And Jehovah, Yahweh, occurs 34 times in 38 verses. And it means that God, that he is the self-existent one who is personal, that he's present, that he's powerful. And he's the ultimate promise keeper. Now, our text, it doesn't say so, but I get the feeling that the people are probably saying something like, uh-oh, we're busted. We're in trouble now because God has showed up on the scene. You know when you were supposed to clean your room as a kid? When you were supposed to do your homework, take out the trash, and, out, and your parents are gone, and they get back and you haven't done it? Imagine that, but a whole lot worse. And before we start harping on these people, thinking, hey, they knew what they were supposed to do. We should cut them some slack. Uh, th they were brave enough to leave Babylon when all these other Jews said, well, we're just going to kind of hang out here because we got a semi-good thing going. I mean, when they got back, they, they rebuilt the altar, the foundation for the temple. And they had a lot of opposition in the land. They weren't just sitting there and everything was hunky-dory, especially the Samaritans were totally against them. And on top of that, King Cyrus, the guy who sent them back, he died. And his successor was putting a lot of pressure on them to stop the work. And if you've been following Christ for a while, it should be no surprise to you that problems, they always come up. Difficulties, discouragement, they set in. It's not always going to be smooth sailing. The water is going to get choppy. Now listen, if you wait for a time when everything's easy, when everything's just going great before you try to move forward, you're going to be waiting a very, very long time. But what I want us to see is that first God... He addresses their hearts before urging them to get back to work. Because, let's face it, the heart, it's always the issue, isn't it? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 tells us, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Now, I want us to look at, at two lessons, just two lessons that we can learn in these opening verses. And the first one is proceed don't procrastinate. We need to move forward and not put it off. Even though the people face some pretty big problems, God summarizes their lame excuse in verse 2. He says, these people say the time has not come, not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And by calling them these people, instead of saying my people, God was showing them that they weren't acting like his people because nothing Nothing had happened for 16 years. 
Now, none of them were saying, oh, rebuilding God's house, that's not important. They weren't saying it wasn't important. They just didn't think that the time, that the time was right. But that's how it happens, doesn't it? When we put something off, when we think we'll get to it later, we're going to get around to it eventually, and then a month goes by, and then a year, and then a decade. When the kids are grown, when they're married, when they have their own kids, we'll get around to it. And if you asked them, if you would have said, why haven't you been doing what God told you to do? Why aren't you rebuilding the temple? They'd probably have said something don't misunderstand me. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I'm all up for rebuilding, but the time, the time, it's just not right. There, there's been this economic downturn. There's a lot of political unrest in the world right now, and I've got other things I have to take care of first. I've got to take care of my farm, my family, my house. I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to make God a priority in my life. I'm going to, eventually. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds realistic and, and, and reasonable. But don't excuses always sound that way? You know, I've just got way too much going on in my life to make it to church every Sunday. I mean, come on, it's my only day that I have to sleep in. And then people who say, you know what, all those people at church, they're hypocrites. And there are some of them I don't even like. You know, I can't commit to anything right now because of my work schedule. There's just too much. Maybe later I will. I mean, I'll think about uh, participating when, when things settle down a bit. I mean, I'm going to give more when I have more. And I'm going to surrender myself totally. I'm going to surrender my life to the Lord after I finish school, or when I get some rest, or when I retire. I'm going to get to it. John Henry Newman once said, No one sins without making some excuse to himself for sinning. Benjamin Franklin wrote, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses who was good at anything else. And John Montgomery Boyce put it this way, If there is no wrongdoing, there is no need to make excuses. See, one of the favorite attacks of the enemy, one of his favorite ways to get us off task is just to whisper in our ears. Next month, next year, after you buy your house, after you get settled into your career, after your family, after that all gets going, that's when, then you can finally really engage yourself in doing what the Lord's called you to do. But listen to me. The truth is, it is never the wrong time to do the right thing. It is never the wrong time to do the right thing. What has God called you to do? What has he placed on your heart to accomplish? What has he gifted you to do? What has he given you so that you could glorify him? See, procrastination is one of the tools the enemy will use to keep us from serving faithfully. 
He's not going to tell you it's not worth it. He'll just say, do it later. We need to proceed and not procrastinate. And the second lesson for today is prioritize God and not your own pleasure. We need to put God first and not ourselves. The God of angel armies asks a question. And he gets to the heart of the issue with them. It's not that they couldn't do it. They just weren't willing to do it. Some of us, if we were going to be more honest with others, we would, instead of saying, I can't, we'd just say, I won't. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Do you see the contrast there? Do you see the difference between the temple and their homes? It's brought out vividly by saying, you yourselves. See, they were all about themselves, and they weren't about God. They're not just spending time building their homes. They are living in a lap of luxury in them. See, when you see that word paneled houses, don't think that, uh, you know, when you'd add a room in the basement with cheap wood paneling that went out of style probably in the 60s, 70s. It's nothing like that. Paneling back then was made out of cedar, oak, <coughs> excuse me. It was typically only used in, in, in the palaces of kings. Um, we find in 1 Kings 7, 7. And he made the hall of the throne where he was pronounced judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from the floor to the rafters. What's sad is more than likely the paneling that had been reserved for the temple for God's place was now being used on their own homes. We know from Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, that King Cyrus had actually given them money to buy hardwood. He didn't say, go out, get some pressed wood or laminate. He said, I want you to get the good stuff so that you can rebuild the temple. And they more than likely used it in their own homes instead. Most of the homes at the time were really modest, built of stone. And these people... They were living in luxury, and the Lord's, it was in shambles. How can they say that the time, that it's just not the right time, after God had moved a pagan king to send them back, giving them money and resources to do a job? He'd given them materials and money, but they just didn't care. They were more into their own pleasure. And that's the exact opposite of what King David said years earlier when he realized, hey, I'm living in this pretty nice place. And there was nothing built for God. He said, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And later he would write in Psalm 132, verses 3 to 5, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, 
a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And here are these people doing the important work of God that they've been commissioned to do. It's why they were sent back to Jerusalem. And they stopped. And our main job as Christians today is to bring glory to God by living out the Great Commission, by connecting people to Jesus, equipping them to be growing and faithful followers. That's why we're here. But just like them, our default setting, it's selfishness. And if we give no thought to how we're living, we're going to automatically live for our own agendas on what we want and our own pleasures. The two lessons we've learned is to proceed and stop procrastinating. And we need to prioritize God and stop living for our own pleasure. See, the bottom line is that these people, they were living their lives without God being in his rightful place. They thought God was nice. You know, we, hey, we like God. He's wonderful. They just didn't see him as a necessity in their lives. They had settled into the land and, and settled spiritually as well. And then Haggai, he shows up and sounds the alarm saying, something's not right here, people. Are you settling today? Are you living without the Lord being the center of your life? Are you not allowing him to be first? See, we need to see ourselves in this picture. If you know Christ, there was a time when you made a personal commitment to him. And at first, you were passionate for those spiritual things. You, you were, were reading your Bible every day. You got involved in serving. And then your efforts, they met difficulties. Something happened. You had a personality clash with someone, another Christian, and then you were disillusioned. Or there were personal trials in your life that God didn't remove or take away even after you prayed about it. And in the meanwhile, life just kept rolling on. You started a career, a family. You had bills to pay, other demands on your time. And church and God's work just kind of drifted into the background. You, you still come as often as you can, but it's become a slice of your life instead of the center. Now, you can tell yourself, you can tell yourself that you don't have the time to serve the way that you used to. Without deliberately rebelling against God, what you've done is drifted into putting your house above his. And I can't say it any better than Kerry Newhoff. He said, you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. You can make excuses or you can make progress, but you cannot make both. You can keep making excuses for not living the way that you should be, you can make excuses and keep living exactly the same way that you are today. Or, or you can make the decision to make no more excuses and start being obedient and living the way that Christ 
has called us to live. See, you can make progress. And if we, if we as a church commit to dropping all the excuses, the hang-ups, we can make progress. We can move forward. We can make a difference in this community, in this state, this country, and even around the world. But that's your choice. But remember this. It's an either-or situation. Excuses or progress. One or the other. You can make excuses or you can make progress. But you can't make both. As the worship team comes, have, have you been making excuses in your Christian walk? Have you not been living and serving the way that you were meant to be? Life's busy, isn't it? It's hard to be here at 10.30 in the morning. It's hard to, to commit to something when we have work and family and sports. But if God's not first, if God's not the center, there's a problem. Because Christ did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. He came, he lived that, a, a perfect, sinless life. He did something that none of us could ever do. He was accused, he was tried, he was beaten. He was nailed to a Roman cross, died and buried, spending three days in the grave. But on that third day, he rose from the dead, doing what we couldn't do ourselves, putting paid to the debt we owe for our sins, giving everything that he was for us. And he expects that kind of commitment in return. He didn't die for a part of our lives. He died for all of our lives, for everything we are. Maybe today you need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior today by admitting you're a sinner, believing that he died for you, that he paid the penalty for your sin, and confessing your faith in him. Maybe today you've done that and you've never followed him in believer's baptism. Maybe today you've been making excuses and you've drifted. And he's just that little slice. Today is the day to say, I'm not okay with that any longer. I want him at the center of my life. And I want to give him everything because he gave everything for me.